Okay, gang, I want you to take your Bible and go to Matthew's biography in the 21st chapter, please. Go to Matthew's biography in the 21st chapter. If you're new to Grace Community Church, uh, I call the Gospels biographies typically. Uh, It's something that I've just gotten in the habit of doing because that's exactly what they are. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are biographies of Jesus Christ, but they're unlike any other biography you would typically read. Now, if you like reading biographies of famous people, great leaders like Abraham Lincoln or George Washington, uh, John F. Kennedy, uh, Martin Luther King Jr., you'll notice that when you read a biography about a famous, powerful person, they typically devote the bulk of those pages to their life, their experiences, their families, their upbringings their principles, their accomplishments, and then they give you just a few pages at the end to describe their death. The biographies of Jesus Christ, and there are four in your New Testament, do the exact opposite. They devote the bulk of their pages, the bulk of their chapters, in one case, it's fully a third of their chapters, to the final week of Jesus' life. We know very little about his upbringing, We know very little about his family. We don't even know when his father Joseph died, but we know all kinds of detail about his death. That's because the mission of Jesus Christ was bigger than his miracles. It was bigger than his teachings. It was all about his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Today is Palm Sunday, and it was Passover week that brought Jesus into the city of Jerusalem that final week. Tens of thousands of people from all over the Mediterranean region had descended upon Jerusalem in celebration of Passover. It was an eight-day celebration or a festival. It was a big party. It was something that people came from miles and miles around. Families were reunited. People opened their homes to total strangers to make room as the population of Jerusalem swelled overnight in honor of Passover. Passover, as you may recall, marks a time 1,400 years earlier known as the Great Exodus in your Old Testament. In around 1400 BC, Moses led God's nation, the Jews, out of their bondage and into the promised land. You remember the tenth and final plague that broke the spirit of Pharaoh was the plague of the angel of death. You'll remember the angel of death was going to come into Egypt and he was going to claim the firstborn in every household across the board. But God gave very specific instructions to Moses, and Moses relayed them to the people. They were to prepare their best lamb for sacrifice. He told them how to sacrifice it. He told them how to prepare it. He even told them how to cook it. And then he told them how to dress. And then specifically, he told them to take the blood from that lamb and paint their doorpost with it. We've got a picture of something similar. It may have looked something like that. And that being the case, as a demonstration of their obedience to God and their faith in God, the angel of death was going to pass over their home. And that's exactly what happened. I said earlier, that tenth and final plague, it broke the spirit of Pharaoh. And Pharaoh released God's nation after 400 years in slavery. 400 years of bondage, and now they're free. So every year at this time of the year, springtime, they celebrate Passover. It's one of the biggest celebrations in Israel even to this day. That event was remembered every year, and so for about 1,400 years, Jesus 
knew about the Passover heritage. Every person on Palm Sunday who cheered for Jesus knew what Passover represented. Palm Sunday is a big day in the church, not as big as Easter, but it builds up to, as Tyler's already indicated, his death on Friday night. At this point, Jesus is 33 years old. He's been teaching and ministering and healing for about three years. He's become incredibly popular. When people heard that Jesus, the miracle worker, the healer, was coming to town, they came from miles and miles around. You couple the popularity of Jesus at that time with the annual celebration of Passover, and Palm Sunday would have been an enormous celebration, incidentally. While we're here in this auditorium, all of your children are out behind the church watching Jesus ride a donkey into, quote, the playground, Jerusalem, and all the kids are waving their palm leaves and, and chanting as we're about to read in just a moment. It's a big deal outside. Frankly, I'd rather be out there with them than in here with you. This was an enormous celebration. The population of Jerusalem would have swollen by tens of thousands of people. This would be their opportunity to make him king. They assumed that's what this was all about. Hail, king of the Jews, they would shout. They thought Jesus would be their political Messiah, that Jesus would be their emancipator, just like Moses had led the people out of their bondage in Egypt. Jesus from Nazareth, the Messiah, as proclaimed in the Old Testament, was going to cause Israel to throw off her chains of Roman domination. But Jesus had his own agenda. Jesus actually knew what was on his horizon. Jesus knew what was coming his way. Today is called Palm Sunday because 2,000 years ago, an event actually occurred. A man actually rode on a borrowed donkey. The crowd actually chanted praises to a king. The event is recorded in all four of the Gospels, Matthew 21, Mark chapter 11, Luke chapter 19, and John chapter 12. Jesus made quite an entrance into the city that day. We're going to read about it in Matthew chapter 21. I want you to read with me in verse 8. Matthew 21 and verse 8. A very large crowd spread, spread their cloaks on the road. I've highlighted the large crowd and will continue to do so through the text this morning because I want to make a point of separating and contrasting Jesus of Nazareth with the crowd, and that's typically you and me. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David. Son of David is a royal term. It's a political term, actually. You could not be king of Israel unless you were in the line of the greatest king of Israel, and that was David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. All the people knew that God had sent Jesus. All the people knew it. Even his enemies, the Pharisees, they knew that there was something so special about Jesus from Nazareth that he must have been sent from God. And then notice the next word, Hosanna. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Hosanna is not a word we use very often. Let me tell you what it meant to them. It was twofold. It was a term denoting adoration. Hosanna! Praise to the king. But it was also a term that demonstrated their need for salvation. Help us! Help us overthrow the Roman bondage under which we live. So it's both a chant of celebration as well as a plea for help. One more time. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest 
heaven. Can you imagine? I want you to picture in your mind what it must have been like. Picture Jesus, our King, our Lord, our Savior. Picture Jesus, the Creator. According to John chapter 1, it was Jesus, the second person in the Trinity, who imagined the universe, who spoke the worlds into existence. It was Jesus. And there he is riding into town on a borrowed donkey with a handful of poor fishermen, shepherds, and followers behind him. Everybody's chanting his name. There's electricity in the air. The crowd is fired up. But wait, I want you to take a closer look. Look at Jesus himself. Now, I don't care what he looks like. I'm not asking about his clothing that day or the length of his beard. I want you to look inside. I want you to see the man and his character Because Jesus is the perfect representation and model of at least three things that are incredibly difficult for me and probably is difficult for you. When I see Jesus entering Jerusalem on the back of a borrowed donkey, I see at least three things that don't come naturally to me. Three things that are incredibly difficult, almost opposite of me in so many ways. Here they are. Surrender. I'm not about surrender, are you? I'll fight you to the bitter end. That's my nature. Obedience? (laughs) My mom will tell you I'm not about obedience. I don't like following the rules and sacrifice. Man, if it's going to cost me that much, I'd just soon not do it. But as I see Jesus on that donkey, those three words come to mind. The image screams surrender, obedience, And sacrifice. Jesus is so unlike the crowd that day recorded in Matthew 21. The crowd is an interesting study in the Gospels. If you read through all four biographies of Christ, you're going to come across the term the crowd quite often, actually. Everywhere Jesus went, he drew massive crowds. Again, when people got word that the healer had come to town, I mean, they came by the thousands. Heal my grandmother, heal my child, change my life, make me happy. But sometimes Jesus rejected the crowds, believe it or not. Sometimes Jesus withdrew from the crowds and he instructed the disciples to do the same. He sought solitude away from the crowds. On some occasions, he actually scolded the crowds. Now, that is so unlike us. See, When we've got a packed house on Sunday morning, last thing I'm ever going to do is scold the crowd, right? Because I love the crowd. Crowds feed our ego, and not just the people on the stage. Crowds make us all feel better because crowds bring energy. You know what else crowds bring? They bring validation. Hey, if all these people go to this church, this must be the best church. If all these people show up, At this place, then we must be on the right track. I can vividly remember in the first year of our history at Grace, we rented a 400-seat auditorium on the campus of Georgia Southern University called the Marvin Pittman School Auditorium. I showed up early one Sunday morning. We unloaded all of the tools necessary for nursery and kids jam and all of our information table. We got up there to have church. The musicians were in their place, and there were 13 people in those 400 seats. You want to talk about discouraging. 
I mean, I, the whole time I was up there talking, and let me just be transparent with you. These musicians who work so hard, they love it when the house is packed. It validates their work. That's part of human nature. When I stand here and I teach, I love it when the house is packed. It validates me as a teacher. But that particular Sunday morning as I began teaching, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, let's just wrap it up early and go home. We could take the whole church to El Sombrero. We'd only use three tables. (laughs) Crowds make us feel good about ourselves. They validate our method, our program. But Jesus didn't see it that way. He didn't see it that way at all. You know what that teaches me? That teaches me that what is popular, even what is unanimous is not always authentic and eternal. What is popular, even unanimous, across the board, majority rules, everyone agrees, that doesn't mean it's authentic. And that doesn't mean that it's eternal. You see, because just three or four chapters later, or three or four pages and two chapters later, in Matthew chapter 23 and verse 37, Jesus would weep and grieve for that same crowd. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. You who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. How often I've longed to gather your children together as a hen would gather her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. That's the fickle nature of being part of the crowd. We're for you today, but we're against you tomorrow. We're all about it on Sunday. We're ready to execute you on Friday. In Matthew 23, Jesus is grieving for the same crowd that was cheering him on Sunday. He's challenging that crowd mentality. He's challenging their loyalty, their devotion. Jesus knows what we should know, that that crowd mentality, it's often capricious. It's often fickle. You see, part of the problem with our nature, human nature, across the board, I'm as guilty as anybody, part of the problem with that crowd mentality is the unrealistic expectations that come with it. You see, the energy of the crowd drew people to Christ only to find out that what they wanted from him was completely and totally unrealistic. They wanted healing, not surrender. They wanted prosperity, not obedience. They wanted happiness, not sacrifice. Same for us. I'm the same way. You're the same way. Many people come to church for the very first time because their marriage is in jeopardy. Many people come to church for the very first time because they are so lonely and unhappy, they decide to give God a try. That's what draws people to church in the first place. But then you start teaching about authentic faith, the authority of the scriptures in our lives, things like surrender and obedience and sacrifice, and you just watch the crowd's quickly dwindle away. The video referenced this a moment ago. In just five short days, from the time they're waving the palm branches, throwing down their coats, chanting Hosanna in the highest, in five short days, they'd be shouting and clamoring for his death. Execute him. Crucify him. If you want to turn to Matthew 27, we'll read about it. It's Friday morning. It's about 7, 7.30 in the morning. Jesus is standing before Pilate, and in Matthew chapter 27 and verse 15, we read the following. Now, it was the governor's custom at the festival, that's Passover, to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. Verse 16, 
At that time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release to you, Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who is called Messiah? Now, John's gospel reveals that Pilate had a private conversation with his wife. And Pilate believed that Jesus was completely and totally righteous. Jesus had done nothing wrong. Pilate did not want to execute Jesus that day, but he left it up to us. Skip down to verse 21. Which of the two do you want me to release to you? Asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. Can you imagine? We've gone from hail king of the Jews, Hosanna, to give us Barabbas instead. What shall I do then? With Jesus who is called Messiah, Pilate asked. And they all answered, crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed? Asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. This is remarkable to me. It's the same group of people. That ought to tell me something. That ought to remind me that my faith can be fickle as well. I can be in support of him today. I can even choose to worship and honor him today. I can invite him into my home on Monday, but I can kick him out on Friday. That's who I am. That's who you are. You see, in just a few days, everything has changed for the crowd, but nothing has changed for Jesus. They had their own agenda which changed back and forth, but nothing changed for Jesus and his agenda. That leads me to a big idea. The crowd mentality produces a fickle faith, but surrender, obedience, and sacrifice, that's what characterizes authentic faith. And I think we need to be reminded of that from time to time. It's easy to jump on the bandwagon. It's tough to surrender. It's easy to go along with a crowd, but man, it's miserable to obey. It's easy to do what everybody else is doing, what becomes popular in social media. But oh boy, don't ask me to make sacrifice. I'm not into it. You see, the New Testament does a masterful job of tearing down what we call legalism. Do you know what legalism is? Legalism is that teaching that you not only have to believe in Jesus, but you also have to dress a certain way when you come to church. Otherwise, you're out. You not only have to believe in Jesus, but you also have to speak like we speak. You have to talk like we talk. You have to go to places that we go and avoid the places we avoid. Legalism teaches that if you're going to believe in Jesus, you've got to look like us. You've got to be like us. The New Testament does an incredible job of dismantling that kind of thinking. But at the same time, the New Testament in perfect balance also does a brilliant job of breaking down what Martin Luther, the 16th century leader of the Reformation, called, quote, easy believism. What is easy believism? Hey, jump on the board, or jump on board, we're all getting a ride to God. That's easy believism. So in a beautifully inspired way, your New Testament balances There is no way to God other than faith. Faith alone, not by works of righteousness, not by good deeds, not based upon how much money you've ever given to the church, while at the same time saying it's by faith, but that faith better be authentic. That faith better be real. Frankly, 
that faith ought be comprised of surrender, obedience, and sacrifice. Now, as I close, picture Jesus one more time on that donkey. See him in your mind's eye. He's humble. He's transparent. He's engaging. The crowd's chanting his name. There's electricity in the air. Most people at that time had never participated in a celebration like this, ever. I talked to a buddy of mine who drove to Atlanta for the parade after the World Series. He said, Mike, I've never seen anything like it. He said, people were stacked up in the sidewalk 20 and 30 deep as that bus came by. People were hanging out of windows. They were chanting and singing. It was incredible. This would have been 10,000 times greater. I want you to see him in your mind's eye. See him in your imagination. Consider that he's God. He's the creator. And there he sits on a borrowed donkey. And he's not riding in a chariot, you know, that's armor clad and covered in gold. He's not followed by an army. Again, he's on a donkey and he's got a handful of close followers who lived in poverty. And as the people chant his name, he knows what lay on his horizon. As they celebrate him as king, he knows the humiliation and the suffering that's just five days away. Look at him. He's a picture of those three things. Surrender to the plan of God. Obedience. Remember his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, not my will, but yours be done. And sacrifice. You can't miss it. You can't miss it. He's so unlike the pagan gods of Rome, who were temperamental, almost childish. You see, all of the Old Testament pagan gods, and even the New Testament pagan gods of Rome and the Gentiles, were like children with power. You didn't make sacrifice to a pagan god because that pagan god loved you and you loved back. No. You made sacrifice to a pagan god hoping and praying that we're going to have a good crop this year. Or hoping and praying that my children will live. Or hoping and praying that I'll be successful. Because the gods that these people knew were temperamental, they were juvenile, they were selfish. They played around and toyed with humanity. And yet there's the one true God on a donkey in humility, engaging looking people in the eye with compassion, love, and forgiveness. You see, large crowds have and always will fill Christ's church in search of something quick, in search of something rewarding. But the message of this church has and always will be as follows. Real life change through Jesus Christ begins with your personal surrender to his lordship and authority. Let me just ask you, who is Jesus to you personally? You want to know why we don't give invitations at Grace Community Church? We sometimes do, but under very specific circumstances. Now, I grew up in a church where at the end of every service, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, everybody stood. We sang 19 verses of Just As I Am, right? Remember? And the pastor would stand behind the pulpit and he would say, there's someone in the back who needs to come forward and ask Jesus into his heart. There's someone in this room right now who needs to walk forward and ask Jesus into their heart. Now, let me explain to you what that looked like, at least in my church. Not every church, but at least in mine. 
That meant that you walked the aisle, you talked to someone who led you in a prayer, and then you signed a card, and congratulations, you're part of the family of God. I despise that line of thinking because there's nothing biblical about it. That's what I would call easy believism. You know what Jesus said? Jesus said, it's not about praying certain words. It's not about being in a certain environment. It's not about doing religious things. It's not about signing up for a church. Here's what Jesus said in Mark chapter 8 and verse 34. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Is that clear? You want to go to heaven? You want to see God one day? You want God through Christ to be real in your life right now? You got to deny yourself. Now look, that doesn't mean asceticism. Self-denial is, I refuse to buy a new car because I'm a follower of Jesus. That's not self-denial. I refuse to live in a nice home. Instead, we live in a hut because I'm a follower of Jesus. It's not about denying self any sort of pleasures or luxuries. It's about denying self. My own sense of self-sovereignty. See, there's a little man that lives in my heart, and he, he tries his best to sit on the throne of my life. He wants to be boss. He wants to be king. I call him Little Mike. He wants to decide. He wants to judge. He wants to react how he chooses to react. But following Christ means denying Little Mike, denying self, taking up my cross, in Jesus' day, when Rome executed someone, they made that person carry their own cross to their own execution. Imagine that. That'd be like, you've been sentenced to the electric chair, here's a screwdriver and a hammer, now start building your own electric chair. That's what it was. It was a symbol of obedience. I'm carrying my cross because Rome is right and I am wrong. Wow. That's Mike's life story. I am so often wrong. I don't see it half the time. My wife sees it every time. But God is always right. And authentic faith means carrying my cross and obeying. And then finally, he says, follow me. You'll never follow Christ without surrender. Deny yourself, that's surrender. Take up your cross, that's obedience. Follow me, that's sacrifice. It's been my goal for a very long time to introduce people to Jesus Christ. And I know most people know who Jesus was. And most people actually believe that he existed. History certainly uh, proves that idea. A lot of people know what this day is all about, Palm Sunday followed by Easter Sunday, but not everybody knows the importance of surrender and obedience and sacrifice. Today when you leave here, I want you to know the importance of each. Because quite frankly, let me just ask you, how much surrender is in your home? As a husband, how much honest-to-God surrender is in your home? How much obedience is in your life? And how much sacrifice? Let's pray. Father, you are not only our Savior and our King and our Lord, but you are a model May the surrender and the obedience and the sacrifice that seems so obvious as we examine you in your life, may we become a reflection of each in our own. 
Father, strengthen couples and marriages as a result. Build families as a result. Strengthen and build churches as a result of people finally understanding the significance of these three things. God, cause us to be willing to surrender to you, your authority in our lives, your plan for us. Be obedient to your ways and be willing to sacrifice when necessary. I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. God bless you, Grace Community Church. Hope you make it a fantastic Easter week. I will see you Friday night for the night of worship.